1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we now live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see, your fa see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your servant Paul and that everything you called him to do. And Lord, now as we look at the passage that uh, he wrote to the Thessalonians, Father, we just pray that you'll open our hearts and minds to hear what you want to say to us. And Lord, we want you to increase and I pray that I may decrease. Lord, we just pray that people will forget what I say that is not of you. So, Lord, we just pray that you'll open our hearts and minds now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right. If we could have our second slide. I've given the title as we earnestly pray. And the big idea is that any move of God is surrounded and saturated in prayer. And I've just put there a quote by J. Edwin Orr. He was a, an Anglo-American converted in Northern Ireland in 1921. Um, and he had a real ministry he travelled around the world by faith, researching and exploring moves of God. And the reason I use his name is because you can actually go on YouTube and you can listen to him where he is speaking at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa um, in America. He was a close friend of Billy Graham Billy Graham called him the, revival, uh, the, history, uh, the historian of revival. And anything that you can come across regarding his lectures about moves of God is well worth hearing. But can we have a slide? Next slide, please. Um, just want to put things into context, really. As a house group, 
we spent over a year studying the book of Acts. And we got a real insight into Paul, Paul the man, and also uh, what God had called him to do. And so, looking at that, we know that in Philippi, he had a tremendous impact, but for that he was imprisoned. And after his release through, and the conversion of the, youth, uh, the jailer, he moved on to Thessalonica. And there, he went to the synagogue, as his normal practice, and he preached for three Sundays. And it says in verse 4 of Acts 17 that some Jews became Christians. However, a vast majority didn't. And they were very upset by what he was doing. It says they were jealous because of the impact that he, he, he made. And what happened was that he um, came under attack. Um, the Jews went to the marketplace, grabbed all the people sitting around doing nothing, stirred them up, created a mob, and uh, in fact, Jason, who was the superintendent of the synagogue, had a house invasion, and people came in looking for Paul. But Paul moved off and was helped to move to the next city, Berea, which is about 45 miles away. And there, there's a key verse. And verse 11, and now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And then it says, many of them believed. And again, the problem was that the Jews in Thessalonica heard what was going on. And they got their rent-a-mob I would imagine they would have used money and alcohol to get them to go down to Berea, which is 45 miles away and walking, that had been a two-day journey. And so they were really stirred up and concerned about what Paul was doing. And so they turned up and Paul left, leaving Timothy and Silas there in the area. And then in Acts 17, we know that Paul moved down to uh, Athens and then on to Corinth. And in Corinth, Paul um, was rejoined by Silas and Timothy. But it was in Corinth where Paul wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians. But just very interestingly, there's a verse I just draw your attention to because, as I said, we were studying Acts for over a year and we began to get to grips and begin to see the personality of Paul. And there are occasions where it seems as though Paul 
was at a really low ebb and discouraged and really pulled down by the attacks that he was experiencing physically, emotionally, and also psychologically perhaps, and spiritually. But while in Corinth, the Lord came to Paul one night in a vision and told him not to be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. And there were other occasions where God met Paul in that dark situation. But anyway, Paul, who's now in Corinth, and uh, next slide, please. And we've got our verses. Just saying, John, we need a bigger lectern. <laughs> but now that Timothy has come to, uh, to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and has longed to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, all our distress and in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted by, about you through your faith. For now, we ne for now we live, if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for you, your sake before our God? So Timothy has followed Paul and eventually caught up with Paul. And he comes back with this encouraging news how the Thessalonians are standing firm in their faith. Paul had only been there a matter of weeks and had, had, been, had to leave, uh, or had been forced to leave, forced out of the town by these undesirables. And we've got this expression, the good news of our faith. And in my study, we've been looking, I've been looking, and that, is equivalent on a par with preaching the good news. And so for this news that Timothy bought was for Paul, like hearing the gospel and the joy and the, that that meant to Paul. And so Paul was burdened for the fact that he had left the Thessalonians as he had done and was so encouraged by this report. And if we go on to the next slide, despite the distress and affliction, Paul experienced joy. Clearly, persecution of the Thessalonians had been increasing because the angry and jealous Jews would have been pulling out all the stops to uh, cause problems, particularly amongst the converted Jews. And also, Paul's distress and affliction. He had left Berea by himself. He had been alone. And all the pressures that he had, and the responsibilities that he had left behind suggest that he 
was distressed, very concerned and worried. Also, we're starting to get the increasing problems of the Judaizers in Galatia, modern-day Turkey, beginning to under, undermine his ministry in the churches that he'd established there during his first missionary journey. And also, we can see very clearly the sadness for not seeing them. He'd left the Thessalonian church. He hears that they wanted to see him. He wanted to see them. But if you look at the map, he was moving in the completely wrong direction. And he didn't actually return to see the church until his third missionary journey, possibly 10 years later. And also, Paul's reputation was coming under attack as well. And so all these things were contributing to his affliction and distress. But behind that, with that, there was this incredible joy. And we can see that in some of the verses that he wrote in Thessalonians. In Thessalonians chapter, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you, the Thessalonians, in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So Paul was saying that we can boast in that. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for you, all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers and remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so despite everything, Paul can see this joy that these Thessalonian Christians who he had left very abruptly, possibly under a cloud in some people's eyes. But he could look and say that uh, he could give thanks and there was joy. And that leads on to the next section. That's good. Thanksgiving and joy lead to prayer. Because we've got now this phrase, for we now live. And I don't know if that was the equivalent of a first century Jewish fist pump or something, but we've got this idea that Paul is now alive, he's been brought to life with this news of the church there. And that we can see that thanksgiving and joy leading to prayer. And again, another verse later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So despite Paul waiting in Colossae for Timothy and obviously worrying, 
thinking about the situation, what was happening to them, were they surviving, were they okay, Did they, were they putting up with the persecution? Timothy came with this message, this report, to say they were thriving, they were growing. And Paul then, with this encouraging news, Paul then can say with joy and be thanks, thankful. And then we can look at verse 10. Because verse 10 says, As we pray most earnestly night and day. And just having a look at that, Paul's example when it comes to prayer. Clearly, Paul, it says Paul prayed night and day. And there are a whole series of references, I've just chosen three, where Paul prays without ceasing. So we've got there, oh, can just go back one side. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayer. And so throughout Paul's epistles, we have got examples of him praying in this way. Next slide. Ephesians 1, verse 15. Yep. Um, Ephesians 1, verse 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering me, or remembering you in my prayers. And in Colossians 1 and verse 3, again we've got this this emphasis on Paul. We always give thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray. And going back to our study in, in Acts, I never really realised what a prayer warrior Paul was. And that's something that I've been discovering recently. And that was not only confined to Paul, but you can see this example of prayer throughout the early church. And I just want to give you one snapshot of another biblical example. Next slide. Epaphras. He's only mentioned in three verses in the book of Colossians. Only has a minor role, but has a powerful, profound impact in his prayer, in his prayer life. He's not the only example, he's just the one I chose. Epaphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on behalf of his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured 
in all the will of God. And so you've got this man, Epaphras, praying for the believers that they will be mature and entering in to all of what God has for them. And this word struggling in some English translations have been translated as wrestling. And the same, it's the same word in, in Greek, or the same root word in Greek. And we're not talking about, now I don't know if you remember Saturday afternoons in the 70s, ITV World of Sport, World of Sport and the wrestling programme. <laughs> I occasionally used to watch it when my mum and dad were out shopping. But nor am I talking about the world of Hulk Hogan and that whole environment of whatever it is now, WWC or WWE or whatever, where, oh, you know, Greg. <laughs> where, where the whole, whole show is stage managed. It's choreographed, it's scripted, and it's theater. We're talking about Greco-Roman wrestling, which was in the Olympic Games, the ancient Olympic Games, and historians tend to think that uh, it was just the, one of the first sports ever demonstrated. And the idea was that it was actually a grappling. You weren't allowed to hit or grab below the belt, but it was the idea that you grappled, you held, you put on a hold to try and defeat your opponent by a pinning, shoulders on the floor, or by submission. And I began to think about that idea of wrestling in prayer because I'm honest, if I'm honest, I don't very often. And I think we're in a position where the Lord, I believe, wants to talk to teach us what it means to really wrestle, grapple, struggle in prayer. Because what does wrestling involve? Next slide, please. Wrestling in prayer. It involves practice, training, learning how to pray effectively. I often go back to the disciples going to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. The Lord wants to teach us to pray, particularly for the situations that we're going into as a church. But it's also used in Ephesians 6 and verse 10 to 20. Can't spend long here, but it's, that's a whole different Bible study. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh or blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
It's the same word to wrestle. And that word wrestling, wrestling in prayer, if we think about it, involves real effort. Also, I don't think you can wrestle without emotion. Feeling something, anger, concern. Again, wrestling involves aggression with under the Lordship of Jesus, being able to take and ask him to deal with situations. Also, wrestling perhaps sometimes means we want to give up. It's too tough. Another thing wrestling and prayer may involve, may involve movement. I find my most effective times praying is when I'm walking. But at times it may be kneeling or it may be prostrate on my face. But wrestling in prayer can involve movement. Also, if you remember or have you seen them, wrestlers grunting and groaning. But there is a time and a place in prayer where we might not have the words to pray. And so it's just the Lord looking at our hearts. Thankfully, he understands. But also, with wind wrestling, there might be pain. And so this idea of praying without ceasing wrestling in prayer was very prevalent and it was essential to the first century church. I want to look at some examples from history because Paul was encouraged by Timothy's report from the Thessalonians. We've got 2,000 years of encouragements. What the Lord's done, how the Lord has moved and blessed people. Groups, churches, people groups. We know that the Lord has moved. And we can look at those for our blessing, learning, encouragement, edification and building up. Now, I, I am a historian, I teach, I have taught history and I love church history. I grew up in a, in a, in a Christian family, I'm, which I'm so thankful for, but I remember at a very early age some of the stories, the great stories of faith and prayer. Um, we used to have the missionaries, the visiting missionaries around, and they used to sit in a particular armchair, and they used to tell us the stories of what the Lord was doing. And I just want to briefly just, I've chosen several, but there are so many. But the first one was a hundred year old, hundred year prayer meeting. Now, early in the 18th century, Europe, the continental Europe, was in a real state of religious turmoil. 
There were religious wars that had been going on. The Reformation had taken place a year or two earlier. Uh, sorry, a century or two earlier. There was the Counter-Reformation. And a lot of people were forced at sword point or gun point to convert. But there were a remnant of Christian believers throughout Europe that stood firm. You know, we have the Huguenots that came, some of them came to Norwich. But there was one particular group based in Central Europe, in modern-day Czech Republic, and they were known as the Moravians. And these Moravian refugees began to congregate onto uh, the estate of a, a Christian uh, lord, Count Zinzendorf. And they kept arriving, and he established a community. And that was the community of Herrenhut, the Lord's Watch. Now, they were arriving, but they had all sorts of difficulties, arguments, theological um, disagreements, where they were basically, and it says in the writings, that they were warring with each other. And Count Zinzendorf brought them together and dealt with them. Um, he actually owned the land that they were living on, so he did have some political influence, but <laughs> it was more spiritual influence. That, and reading, it says, they learnt how to love one another. And it talks about a real visitation of the Holy Spirit and how they came together and put aside their differences. And one of the very famous quotations from Zinzendorf is, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. And that, I believe, is something that we do see here at Servitor Church. But as a result of this unity, this move of the Spirit here, there was an established a hundred-year prayer meeting that went on 24-7. And as a result, you had the Moravian missionaries moving out all over the world, to the West Indies, to America, to Iceland, to Scandinavia. And it was the first missionary, modern-day missionary movement. And Wesley, the Wesleys actually visited uh, that, that, uh, uh, that village of Herrenhut, and they prayed for Wesley. And Wesley came back. It's interesting. The second was a praying mother. And I'm thinking of Wesley's mother. Susanna Wesley. She was born in 1689. Married in 1688. She had 19 children, nine of whom died in infancy. Her husband was caught up 
and spent his life writing a treatise on the book of Job. And so he was often away studying and things like that. And it was Susanna who managed the household. And she had been brought up in a nonconformist background and there, in a large family, she had had older siblings and had learnt classics, the classics, Latin and Greek, and also the Bible. And she taught her children faithfully, boys and girls, this a classical education and a biblical education. It was a very strict regime, 9 to 12 and then 2 to 5. But the thing was, she managed to spend two hours a day before God, praying and reading the Bible. And the way she did it was the vicarage, um, was always busy with all these children milling about because they started their education when they were five, when they could read. But when they saw their mother sitting in her favourite chair with her long white apron over her head, they knew they had to be quiet, they had to get on with their study or their chores while she spent that time with the Lord. Um, interestingly enough, her, her husband was away. She would do Bible studies with her children on a Sunday afternoon. And the word got around. And there was a time when over 200 people would be crammed in her room, hanging in the windows and listening to her studies. But we know the impact. John Wesley, powerful evangelism, um, preaching in the open air, travelling by horseback, preaching to the crowds, often three times a day. Um, at 70, he spoke to 32,000 people without amplification. And we know that he established the Methodist Church. And looking at that Methodist church movement and all the linking churches that come under the umbrella and have been influenced by the Methodist church, you've got millions of people impacted by his ministry. Due, perhaps to a praying mother. We've got Charles Wesley. Oh, sorry, no, I'll just mention this. Um, he was known as the father of the Christian paperback because all of his sermons and things were written in paperback, printed and handed out. He was carried to his grave, leaving nothing but a good library of books, a well-worn clergyman's gown and the Methodist church, somebody wrote. His cha Charles's brother was very instrumental in supporting John, and they worked very, very closely together. But Charles was a brilliant musician and hymn writer. And he wrote over 6,000 hymns. 
a lot of which are still used today. They might be modified slightly, but they are still used today. Third one, the boiler room. Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, had up to 10,000 people at his services. Thousands converted. But he would claim that his success was due to the prayers of his congregation of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He used to have prayer gatherings and he used to call them boiler rooms. And so these big churches um, had a boiler to pump out the heat to try and warm the big auditoriums, which would seat thousands. And the story is that two stu uh, five students uh, visited London and decided to go and hear him. And while they were waiting for the door to open, they were greeted by a man. And that man said, gentlemen, let me show you round. Would you like to see the heating plant of this church? Not particularly interested, but did not want to offend. And also, it was a very hot day in July. <laughs> they, just, they agreed. And they were taken down the stairway to beneath the church. And the door was quietly opened. And the man said, this is our heating plant. They looked through the door and saw 700 people bowed in prayer, asking for blessing and conversions in the service above. Closing the door, Charles Spurgeon then introduced himself. I don't want to put a guilt trip on anyone, but I actually went to the church so a prayer meeting before church. There were five of us. Now, I don't, don't mean to, you know, where is the Lord promises where two or three are gathered, he's in the midst. But I just want to encourage you, driving to church. I'm sure you do, but if you don't, could you be praying for the church service? Um, we've been doing that. On occasions, it's been meant some apologies, getting right with the Lord, ready for the service. I just throw that out. Could we pray, be praying for the church as on a way to church? Getting ourselves right before the Lord, ready Amen. for the church. Very briefly, I just want to talk about, I don't know, are you being encouraged? Is it something warming inside as you hear some of these stories? I hope so. Because there's one that's very, very close to home. There's the forgotten revival that took place in East Anglia, based in Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft. Um, there was the Reverend Douglas Brown, who was the minister at London Road Baptist Church, which was knocked down in the 70s when the church, Baptist Church, moved to Kirkley. That's right. And he arrived just after the Second World War, and the church committed to pray 
for two, and they prayed for two years every Monday night and had a regular attendance of 90. And what happened was a minister from London came up and started to hold meetings. And people heard the gospel. They heard what Jesus had done, that he had died on the cross for their sin. And they came under conviction of a holy God. And in meetings, they were just broken and kneeling before God, asking for forgiveness. And these were people that had been in the church for often decades. But God moved mightily. And then alongside that, you had the Scottish Herring Fleet. Now, the Scottish Herring Fleet moved from Scotland all the way down through the North Sea, fishing for herring uh, during the fishing season. And the season was extended as the boats came further south. And so you had these Scottish fishermen, most of whom had been caught up in the First World War and had seen all the atrocities and were quite often very hardened and cynical to what, what had happened. And then their women folk would come down on the trains and at each of the ports would actually gut the herrings. Now, if you go to the Time and Tide Museum in, Yar in Yarmouth, you can find out about the history of the herring industry. It's fascinating. But a woman could gut a herring in three seconds. Head, tail, guts, out. Wow. And they would do this for hours on end and the, the barrels would be filled and the barrels would be sent to London. But they came down following their menfolk with the, the herring industry. And there was a fisherman that had been through the First World War, was a hardened drinker, and he was converted, gloriously converted, name of Jock Troop. And he met with the people already in Lysoff, the ministers, and you actually saw a coming together of the Anglican Church, the Baptist Church, the Seamen's Mission, and those churches were full of locals and the hundreds of uh, Scottish folk that came down. And there's a story of a trawler fishing out in the North Sea and about 10 miles off the coast, God met with all the 10 men on that boat. And they were brought to the conviction of sin. They recognised their standing before a holy God, cried out for mercy, and were gloriously saved. Jock Troop also carried out open-air uh, open missions and meetings. And in Yarmouth, in Yarmouth Marketplace, there are stories of scores of people in the rain on their knees, seeking the Lord for forgiveness. That's just down the road. We've got a church plant there. There's a book. I think we need to give it to Zach. I'll give my copy to Zach. 
but it's just the story of what God has done and the encouragement that can be. Then finally, two old ladies, two sisters, Peggy Smith, 84 and blind, Christine Smith, 82 and arthritic, on the Isle of Lewis. The Lord showed them a revival was coming. They told the minister and the minister listened. And the minister and the leadership team established a prayer meeting three times a week in a barn that started at 10 p.m. and finished at 3 p.m. And they were praying, and they were praying through Psalm 24. And the verse that came through was clean hands, pure heart. And there was a time of confession where these church leaders confessed their sin and there was breakthrough. And meetings were carried on daily for five weeks, every night starting and going on to three or four o'clock in the morning as people came under the conviction of sin. Duncan Campbell, a very famous uh, faith missioner was involved in that and that revival that move of God lasted for over three years and there were some isolated uh, revivals up until 80, uh, 58 and 59 on the islands of Lewis but not much has happened since in this country perhaps which is great for Lisa Rose and her prayer meeting. There are many more examples that I could have talked about that I just came across. Next slide, please. Korean Pentecost and Manchuria in the early 1900s. Move of God, people praying for those two countries. East Africa in the 50s. Borneo in 1960. And then some of the people that were involved that were praying, known as prayer warriors. Hudson Taylor, J.O. Frazier, George Muller. Also the Welsh, Welsh Revival that took place in 1904. Um, incredible move of God. Hundreds of miners were saved and that caused a problem for the mine owners. Coal production went down. The reason the pit ponies no longer understood the miners because they didn't use bad language anymore. <laughs> God had moved. Now, as we hear these reports, I just get so encouraged, so blessed. I just encourage you to find out your own stories, research your own stories. They're there on the internet, YouTube. Type in YouTube, type in some of these people some of these moves of God, and you will be able to access what God has done. Now, as you look at that, and as you feel perhaps stirred like I do, and you think, Lord, do it again. Amen. Then, the Lord says, I want to use you. And that's the challenge. 
do we want to be used? Um, I'm just so encouraged by the fact that we're going from one church, we've got the opportunity for three churches. John's asked us to seek where we should be, where we should go. Now, for some of us, that's going to be a difficult problem. It's like some people are worried by it. I want to just stop you there, and I want to look at the final part of Paul's prayer. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. Still need that lectern. Okay, um, breaking into verse ten. We pray most earnestly, night and day, that you may see your fa- you see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. May our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish in your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus and with all his saints. So Paul's prayer, our prayer, is that our faith may grow and may mature. that their love or our love may increase or abound. Now, if you turn over on the sheets that I gave you or have been handed out, um, I just put a selection, a random selection. I just downloaded a copy of the 59 uh, one another verses. And a number of them are duplicated, so I took those out. But we have it there, some of them there. It's part and parcel of our church. And so I just want to leave those with you. I find it quite interesting and useful to look at those verses with a prayerful heart and attitude before the Lord, asking him which one does he want to build into our lives? Which one does he want to develop? And so that may be something that you might like to do. It may mean change. It may mean humbling ourselves. We were so encouraged by somebody coming to the church recently and apologising for something that had happened. And it's in that environment, as our faith matures, as our love increases, we grow together into a body, a united body, like Harrenhut, the Moravians. They had to be broken. They had to be taught what it meant to love one another. The Lord wants to do that amongst us in a deeper way. So pray through 
those verses, asking the Lord what, which one he wants us to develop and how he wants us to develop. And then finally in verse 13, that we might be holy, living a life pleasing to God, which leads the way to the next message next week. So you have to come for that. But just in summary, Paul prayed. He earnestly prayed. He prayed continuously. May we do that. He struggled, he wrestled in prayer. May we learn to do that. And he was encouraged by the Thessalonians. We can be encouraged by history, what has happened in history. We can be encouraged by each other, sharing testimonies, sharing stories, growing together, learning from each other. And as we do that, our faith will mature. Our love may increase and that we might become more holy and pleasing to God. I just want to pray and just leave that with you. I'd encourage you to take those sheets home, seek out some of the stories, be encouraged by some of the stories, be encouraged by each other, because God wants to do things amongst us. So I'll just pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this passage. We just thank you for what we can learn. And Father, we confess we don't honestly pray earnestly. Lord, as the disciples said, teach us to pray. Show us how we can pray effectively. Show us what it means to wrestle in prayer and all that means. And Lord, we just pray that you'll encourage us, that we'll look for examples of where the way you've used people in history, also the way you're using people now, that we'll learn from each other, that we will grow in maturity, that we will grow in love, and that we will grow in holiness. Lord, we just pray that you'll do these things. And Lord, we just pray that we'll be open for you to do these things in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.